Psalm chapter 1 this morning. I invite you to turn there with me. We are doing a three-week mini-series here entitled A New Way of Thinking. Each week we are unpacking one aspect of this key statement. Here it is. We're going to talk about this for a moment, do a brief review, and then launch into what we're going to discuss today. Our key statement is this, because your thinking is the key to spiritual growth, you must develop the ability to reason biblically by rooting your thinking in scriptural truth. And that's a mouthful, I acknowledge that. And so we're going to unpack a phrase a week. So last week, we tackled the first part of this statement as we studied Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. In that passage, Ephesians 4 showed us three reasons why your thinking is the key to spiritual growth. Hopefully this, if you were with us last time, these are not completely foreign to you. You remember at least hearing these. First of all, we learned that spiritual growth is impossible with an unsaved mind. The unsaved mind, the the, the mind that we have when we come into this world is futile and darkened. It's defiled by sin. Second, learning Christ is fundamental to the Christian life. Paul calls us Christ learners, that we are embracing truth about Jesus and incorporating it into our lives. The Christian is really a disciple of Jesus, a Christ learner. And if we are Christ learners, the goal of that knowledge is not simply to get a better score on a test, but to live it out, to have transformed lives. And that leads us to number three, spiritual transformation requires a renewed mind. A renewed mind is not simply to make something new again, but it's to make something new with the implication of being better. And to cultivate a renewed mind, we talked about believing truth about God, identifying lies that we wrongly believe, and replacing those lies and sinful thoughts with godly thoughts. In fact, the process of spiritual transformation can be illustrated with a flow chart, a scriptural flow chart. Beliefs, what you believe about God and about your world around you, lead to your thoughts and they influence your thoughts. Your thoughts then result and direct our actions. If our mind and thinking then are the keys to spiritual growth, we need to take a closer look at the influences of our thinking. Our key statement says this, because your thinking is the key to spiritual growth, develop the ability to reason biblically. How? By rooting your thinking in scriptural truth. So it's that last phrase that we will examine today, rooting your thinking in scriptural truth. To think biblically, the Bible must be the controlling influence for our mind. We must get all of our thoughts and find everything that we are viewing through life out of scripture's perspective. But let's be honest, because that's good for the soul. What actually influences our thoughts? The problem with all of us, at least maybe I shouldn't speak for you, my problem is that I'm far too easily influenced by our ungodly culture around us than I am by scriptural truth. And maybe you are the same way. We, as a community of God's people, are still far too easily influenced by ungodliness rather than by scriptural truth. The world's values and their sinful desires and our sinful flesh contradict the word of God and influence us to think wrongly in the wrong direction. So to be rooted in our thinking, to be stable and steadfast and godly, we have to be able to reason biblically and grow spiritually. And to do all of that, scripture must be the primary influence on your mind. That's our big idea today. Scripture must be the primary influence on your mind. You may be familiar with the depiction of a shoulder angel and a shoulder devil in movies or artwork and that sort of thing. And the example 
maybe this reveals my maturity, but the example that comes to my mind is the 2000 film, The Emperor's New Groove. There's a character named Kronk, and he faces several moral dilemmas throughout the entirety of the film. And poof, at that moment, a little devil pops up on one shoulder. He's got a pitchfork, and he's dressed in red. And then on the other shoulder, uh, an angel with a halo and a harp appears. And then they begin to discuss and argue back and forth what this character, Kronk, should do. Now, this movie was, I think, one of the movies that got stuck in our family's DVD player in our car. So I've got, like, the whole thing memorized. It's really bad, okay? If you've never seen it, I think it's funny, so don't judge me if you don't think it's funny. This is total fiction, though, isn't it? The fact that you could have a shoulder devil and a shoulder angel pop up and begin to debate one another. It's total fiction, and yet there's a resemblance to reality, isn't there? Where in our hearts, when we're faced with a decision, there's a battle going on between right and wrong. The, the Bible actually calls that the battle between the spirit and the flesh. So I've entitled our message today, Under the Influence, because what influences our thinking will control our thoughts. What influences our thinking will control how we grow and what we grow to be like. To be rooted in our thinking, we must make Scripture the primary influence of our minds. And that's why we're in Psalm chapter 1. If we raise this question, well, how? How do I make Scripture the primary influence in my mind? Psalm 1 teaches us five principles that answer that question. And this, this chapter teaches by contrast. There are a number of really fascinating differences and comparisons here. And these contrasts we will see teach us about influence. The first key principle is in verses 1 through 2, and it's this. You will be influenced by who or what you listen to. Look with me in verses 1 through 2. They're up on the screen as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And from this comparison in these two verses, we're going to glean several truths, the first of which is perhaps the most important when it comes to our influences. Who or what we listen to is what influences us. There are two options that the psalm lays out. Option number one is listen to sinful people. There are several sources of ungodly influences. Let's meet the characters. Who are they? They are ungodly, sinners, and scornful. Who are the ungodly? The ungodly are all those who do not follow God. We could refer to them as the common man or your average unsaved person, just going through life. But there's a, an intensification with each of these terms. Sinners are those people who have made a practice of following their evil desires. In fact, there's a phenomenon in our society where we have started to embrace an identity that is sinful. You say, what, what do you mean? When we are known by our sinful activity, we have a sinful identity. A drunkard is an identity, but it's also a sin. Homosexuality is, it has become an identity. I'm identifying by my sexual preference or my sexual orientation. That's a sin. Thievery, being a thief, that's an identity and also a sin. So when we look around our world, sometimes they're known by the very evil they perpetrate. Scoffers, third, are the most hardened type of unbeliever. They are defiant in their acting against God. They hate the Lord. They hate his work. And so, therefore, anyone who loves the Lord and works for the Lord, they stand against. Now, these people influence us in a variety of ways, and that's evidenced by their activities in verses 1 and 2, specifically verse 1. 
The counsel of the ungodly refers to the advice given by these ungodly people. We could call this worldly wisdom. This is the general cultural thoughts, the general beliefs that are held by people out there. Second is the path of sinners. That's a lifestyle of sinning that includes habits and routines and values and the priorities of sinful choices. Then there's the seed of the scornful at the end of verse 1. And that shows that the scornful gather together and they have deep fellowship over their anti-God posture. They plan how to advance their agenda in the world, which runs contrary to God. And that leads us to a key point. Sinful people teach an anti-God view of life. Now, they may not necessarily be explicitly teaching an anti-God view of life. There are a lot of moral good people out there in our world that are very nice people. But if you have a darkened, futile mind, Ephesians chapter 4, you are not thinking God's thoughts after him. These people do not pursue greater love for God. They don't persuade us to obey God and his ways. And the influence of the ungodly, if we really think carefully about our culture, is both active and passive. And maybe you've never thought about this way before. But our culture, the influence of the ungodly, actively teaches us their values. They actively exert pressure on us to join them. They try to cancel or minimize those who stand against them. That's active influence. They will also passively influence us by what they present as normal. By what they present as normal. Well, how does the world influence us? There are so many ways we could spend several sessions talking about how the world influences us. But just to get you thinking, consider several areas. First, through what you listen to. Apparently, I did a little research, the average American listens to something for about 90 minutes a day. That's separate from what we watch and listen to at the same time. We'll get to screen time in a moment. But this includes things like music, audiobooks, podcasts, news shows that you're just listening to and you're not watching. So ask yourself, what programs are you listening to? If you were to go back and check your podcasting app or your Spotify account or your musical choices, your CD collection. Hopefully no one's going back to records and 8-tracks. But what do you listen to? What is being taught to you through, those, through your ears? Are these biblical convictions that you have being fortified or eroded by what you're listening to? What about screen time? Americans apparently are looking at screens for about seven and a half hours a day. That's almost a third of our day that we look at screens, and that could be for any reason. If you work in front of a screen, there's your work week right there. Half of our waking hours are spent in front of a screen. Well, that means that what we look at will influence us. The social media accounts we scroll, the videos we watch, even the ads that we see, the news programs that we're watching, they all influence us. Sometimes they're very actively influencing us and telling us to think a certain way or to live a certain way or to buy my product. Sometimes it's very subtle. How about entertainment? A recent study shows that in 2020, during the pandemic, the average American watched TV for 3.1 hours a day. TV for 3.1 hours a day or streamed it on their device. Well, I don't think I have to explain that shows and movies teach values The show that we laugh at, that we watch, isn't just a funny thing that we can see. It's teaching us something. It's influencing us. The script writers make the characters say lines to shape something. 
to shape your views, to shape your perspective. They present certain lifestyles as okay and others as not. Just think about how homosexuality has developed in our culture for the last two decades. Two decades ago, no one was talking about it. And then to get the agenda across, TV shows started to introduce homosexual characters and they started to make jokes about it and they started to tell everyone through the script that it was okay to be homosexual. Well, that's not what's taking place today. And it's not because things have gotten better. Homosexuality is presented as normal. If a TV show doesn't have one of these characters or doesn't have content that goes like that, they get, they get marked and dinged by an organization that checks for these things. Our culture is influencing us. And what ends up happening is we think about this battle for right standards of sexuality. And so we start to think that sins like adultery are fine in comparison. And that's not true either. It's so easy to be influenced to think wrongly by what we watch, by what we listen to. Romans 12.2, we mentioned it last week. But Romans 12.2 is a command. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not be pressed into their mold. Don't think their thoughts after them. And so to prevent ungodly thinking from shaping us, we have to take an offensive and a defensive strategy defensively, we have to recognize where these sources of influence are coming from and resist them. Offensively, we have to follow option number two and listen to the Lord and his word because we are always listening to something. We are never going to be in a place in our lives where nothing influences us. Something, someone is always influencing us. So it's a matter of who or what. The blessed man in Psalm 1 verse 2 intentionally studies the word of God so that it can influence him. Well, how does scripture influence us? And I think here's a very simple answer. By teaching us God's view of life. Scripture influences us by teaching us God's view of life. So when we listen to God's word, we are accepting that his perspective is true. We are basing our lives around what God says is right Viewing life from God's perspective then flies in the face of our sinful culture. But when we accept what God says is true, it transforms us. It fundamentally alters our way of thinking. Several of you shared with me over the course of the last few days how helpful or convicting, maybe is a better word, it was to hear about the sin of complaining last week. Let's think about that for a moment. Why was, and some of you are like, no, don't go there again. Why? Was it so helpful to you to think about complaining that way? And I think the answer is because we took time to view complaining from God's perspective. How does our culture view complaining? (laughs) As our national pastime? (laughs) The founders complained and that led to action and therefore America was born. Okay, It's not that far off. The thing that we can always do no matter how bad we feel? Complaining. Complaining is an activity that unites us around a common cause. That happens at work all the time, doesn't it? When you get nothing else in common with other people, just start complaining, you'll have a group. Everyone does it. It's not really a problem. And all those things that I just said are, in a nutshell, the unspoken counsel of the ungodly and the path of sinners. The world approves of complaining and practices it regularly. So how does God view complaining? That's where it gets convicting. God views complaining as an attack against himself, a rejection of his goodness, wisdom, provision, promises, and ultimately a rejection of himself. So if we want to please God with our words and grow in our spiritual walk, we must accept God's view of complaining. 
That's an example of what the godly man does. He receives the influence of scripture and views life through scripture's perspective. Who you listen to will influence you. If you had to track every single minute of your waking hours, how many minutes would you find that you are being influenced by God's word? Think about your Bible reading. Think about time in prayer. You can even count when you pray before your meals. Think about worship and gathering on Sunday mornings. Think about spiritual conversations or small group meetings. All that time that you're spending being influenced by Scripture or God's Word. Now, think about how many minutes you spend being influenced by the world, listening to their advice, watching their entertainment, talking with their people, ingesting their ideas, considering their philosophies. Who is winning this battle of influence? We can't expect to grow spiritually if we're more influenced by our world than by God's word. And that calls for us to do some heart searching and to honestly acknowledge how easily influenced we are by the world. And there are going to be two responses to this today when we conclude in a while. There are going to be two responses that we can have. One is we can say, oh, that was really good, and walk out, or I guess you could say it's bad, but you're trying to be polite because we're at church. And you say, that was, that was really good. You walk out and you do nothing. Or you can say, you know, I really need to take a close look at what is influencing me. Without turning away from ungodly influences, we won't receive the benefit of the Bible's influence. Here's an illustration of that. In fact, this week, our bathroom faucet at our house basically stopped working. The water would come out in a trickle. We couldn't get the water to come out. So after living with that for a couple weeks, I finally unscrewed the tip of the faucet and saw that it was blocked up by a bunch of junk. Surprise, surprise. Kate cleaned it, put it back on the faucet, and it's coming like a fire hydrant now. The water started flowing again. This should not be shocking, right? But there's a parallel here. Because God's word is still powerful. The water source was not the problem. And God's word is not the problem. It's our reception of it that's the problem. We may be blocking the spirit of God's influence in our life by all of these other competing voices. How did God speak on the mountain to Elijah? Did he speak in the earthquake or the fire or the tornado, the rushing wind? No, he spoke in a still, small voice voice. And if we don't clear out the ungodly influences that are blocking up our ears, we may not have ears to hear the word of God. So you may need to stop listening to that podcast that curses all the time. You may need to stop filling your mind with hours of news media each day. The news doesn't change that fast. You may need to stop reading things that capture your heart with discontentment or lust or greed. You may need to scale back your TV or streaming habits, asking yourself the question, am I willing to say no to this show that I like to let God have more of my heart and mind? And then once we stop getting influenced by the world, we can start replacing these godly influences with a greater exposure to God's word. You can't listen to God if you never open his word. So how many days a week do you get alone with God? How often, how many minutes a day, how many hours a day do you spend with him? What about replacing some music with Christian music or secular podcasts and news shows with sermons while you drive or exercise? 
How about reading a book on a biblical or spiritual topic? How about joining a Bible study class or attending a small group to get more exposure to God's word, to interact with God's people who will help counteract those ungodly influences in your life? There really are so many ways to let scripture influence you. We just have to be creative in how we get more of God's truth into our hearts. Now, I've intentionally spent a long time on principle number one because it's so important. Let's move on to number two. The first principle is who or what you listen to will influence you. Second from Psalm 1 is what influences you will control what you love. Your influences will control what you love. Influences seek to capture our hearts because whoever captures our hearts will control us. Whatever you love will control you. And the deeper your love is for that thing, the stronger its control will be over your life. Psalm 1 gives us a contrast in what a person loves, and it uses the word delight. Do we delight in the law of the Lord? Do we delight in his word? Or do we delight in sin and pursuing evil? To delight is to feel great joy for something and a growing desire for increasing amounts of it. You simultaneously enjoy something and want more of it. Maybe that's a simpler way to put it. Every influence in our lives is seeking to develop greater love. Ungodly influences, on the one hand, are seeking to influence us and develop a greater love for sin and a greater love for evil. Scriptural influences, on the other hand, are developing a greater enjoyment, a greater love for the Word of God and for spiritual truths. Let's try to measure and gauge our delight in God's word. How do we know that we delight in God's word? How do we know we love the law of the Lord, as Psalm 119 says? Well, I think you have to ask yourself, do I enjoy the word of God? People who love the word of God don't view their Bible with a sense of duty or drudgery. They enjoy reading it. They enjoy studying it. They enjoy memorizing it. They enjoy attending worship to hear more of it. They enjoy talking about it with other people. If you never want to talk about the Bible, you probably don't love it. We talk about the things that we love. We can also measure our delight in God's word by seeing if we want more of it. You have a steady growing thirst for God's word, not just on Sundays, but throughout the day. Occasionally, when we leave an ice cream shop, one of our boys will say, can we go back? Well, we just walked out of the store. (laughs) The food isn't even digested yet. But what are they doing? They delight in that treat, and so they want more of it. You can also measure your delight in God's word by the priority that you give it in your life. What place is it in your schedule? Is it the first thing you do? You say, well, sometimes the first thing I do is not the most important. Okay, that's fine. But has it been given a place of preference in your life? Have you altered maybe even your evening schedule so that you can have the the right morning routine to get time in God's word that's unhurried? Maybe you need to go to bed earlier so you can rise a little earlier to have that time with the Lord instead of always be running out the door. Maybe you need to decline to visit the mountains or take another trip somewhere so that you can be in church regularly and hear God's word preached. You say, now you're not preaching, you're meddling. Do we delight in God's word? Or do we delight in those ski slopes that are up there? How about this? We get excited about God's word. There's a growing passion for the word of God that spills over into other parts of our life. We catch ourselves thinking about it more. We talk about it more with other people. We're thrilled to learn something new about it. Those are all markers of what we delight in. And if it's not scripture, if it's not the church, if it's not God, then what is it? 
Is the basis of our conversation with other people that show that we're watching or the sports team or the current event or the news? What is it? Because what you love is what will influence you. Well, verses one through two give a third contrast. And this time it's the contrast of thinking. Your influences will shape your thinking. You say that's kind of repetitive because that's what this whole series is about. Yes, but I can't let that go by without pointing it out. Verse one, the ungodly do what? They offer their counsel. They give advice, that's another translation of that word, that runs counter to God's ways. In contrast, what does the blessed man do with his thoughts? He or she meditates on the word of God. To meditate is is to ponder something, to give serious thought to it, to mull it over in one's mind. I like to think of meditation as like mental seasoning or marination, just like marinating a good ribeye. The more you marinate it, the longer it sits in that and soaks in it, the more flavor you're going to get. Biblical meditation differs from the meditation of other religious practices, though. Perhaps you're thinking, well, aren't there some other religions that do that? Yes. For example, Buddhist meditation. They instruct people to empty their minds and therefore reach a higher state of consciousness. This will lead to a state of enlightenment in the Buddhist thought. Well, biblical meditation is different than that. Because most of the time, other religions will try to meditate by clearing the mind. Biblical meditation actually seeks to fill the mind, but to fill it with God's truth. Because we believe that our hearts are wicked and evil, and if we clear our minds, then we just give evil an opportunity to emerge. We need to fill our minds with God's truth. That's what Philippians 4, 8 says. Finally, brethren... Whatever things are, and here's what we're supposed to think about, whatever things are true, noble or virtuous, just, pure, lovely, of good report, of good reputation, if there's any virtue, if there's anything worthy of praise, meditate, think on these things. Start taking this verse and make it the grid through which you value or you measure everything that you watch on TV everything that you listen to on your phone. If it's not teaching me to do these things, I have to really question whether or not I should be watching it. The goal of biblical meditation is that scripture shapes all aspects of your thinking. That's why verse two says to meditate in it day and night. Does he literally mean you need to be consciously reading God's word? I think it's impossible to read it day and night. You'd be walking around with your Bible like glued to your forehead which the Jewish people kind of do in fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter six because they're trying to get the word of God to shape their ways. As we meditate day and night, we are trying to get God's truth to so saturate our minds so that our thoughts and our choices all come back to the source of scripture. If your mind is steeped in God's truth, just like you steep a tea bag, The Bible will dictate how you make your choices, how you set your day's agenda, what you value in life, how you react to frustrations, how you handle hardships, how you spend your leisure time. The Bible will teach you to do these things. You say, wait a minute, the Bible talks about whether I should go skiing or play golf today? No, but the Bible shapes how we think about even our leisure time. So how can you develop the practice of biblical meditation? And I think the answer may be a little surprising because here's the answer. If you're a worrier, you're a really good meditator. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. So what do you worry about? Play my game with me for a minute. 
okay? What do you like to worry about or what do you find yourself worrying about? Whether that's maybe a financial situation, rising inflation, a child or grandchild's spiritual condition, maybe what other people think about you, the list could go on and on. What do you worry about? You got that thing in your mind? When you start worrying about that, what do you do? Well, you, you start turning it over from every angle. You start playing out every possible scenario and thinking through every possible outcome. And then you live accordingly. And that usually means you're angry or, or frustrated or fearful because worry produces ungodly fruits. But that's actually what it means to biblically meditate, except, here's the huge difference, your thoughts are fixated on Scripture. Instead of worrying, let's take what other people think about you as an example. Instead of worrying about what does someone else think of me, you remember that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That means that God eternally loves you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Nothing can separate you from him. God will never leave you or forsake you. He will always be there for you. He will always receive you and draw you near to him. That means that no matter what other people think about you, God's thoughts toward you are full of forgiveness. God's thoughts are full of kindness and peace. He chose you in spite of you, and no human can take away the things that are most important to you, which is like your eternal security. And instead of being given to fear or working overtime to make people like you or, or killing yourself to gain their approval or gain notice by someone else, you accept your status as accepted in the beloved. You are chosen called by God, firmly planted in his family. And so the fruits of biblical meditation result in a life of peace where you're not enslaved to other people's opinions over you. That's biblical meditation. Filling your thoughts with truth, turning it over from every angle so that God's thoughts as revealed in scripture become your thoughts. So how do you do that? You have to, to meditate in the word of God. You have to get the word of God in your heart as your primary influence. And when you think that way, your thoughts then start to control your actions and change how you live. Instead of reacting with frustration, all of a sudden you find yourself reacting with peace and calmness and joy. And it's kind of weird, but it's what the Spirit of God is doing in you. It is possible to have that happen. Fourth, your influences then change the way you live. Your influences are not passive in the sense that they're not just, they're always moving towards something. They're always pushing you in a direction. So ungodly influences, you could probably guess, are pushing you toward a lifestyle of sin, toward increasing love and participation in evil. God's word pushes you to a lifestyle that pleases God. If you glance back at verse 1 with me, notice the progression toward greater participation in sin as you go along. The spiral is from listening to walking to sitting got the image or the picture of someone leaning in and kind of hearing someone's advice and then walking with them along the way and then sitting down at table with them to have dinner and fellowship. There's a greater accommodation for evil that way. One commentator said this about these descriptions of verse one, quote, the point of this threefold intensification is to show that if people at first take their spiritual guidance from unbelievers instead of God, they will gradually begin living like the world and become more entangled in it, end quote. The contrast is with the blessed man. And what does he do? He delights in God's word and he meditates on it so that he will obey it. Meditation results in action. You can tell a person's influences by the way he or she lives. I'll give you a personal example. When I was in junior high, 
some of my peers discovered slang words. They weren't quite curse words, but they were close. Well, you have to spend a lot of time with your peers in junior high because you have no other friends. And you also are with them at school. So I spent time with them in class, at PE, around the lunch table when we weren't being monitored. And as they used words that were off color or coarse, guess what started to happen to me? I started to talk just like them. And then my parents heard it and they helped correct that in me, which was good. So there was a competing influence. I had my peers who were influencing me to talk one way, my parents, and they had God-given authority, who were influencing me to talk a different way. And you may not be able to trace your behavior back to your influences that easily, but the connection is there. What influences your thoughts will spill out into your life. The older we get, the more mature we are, the more subtle we become, maybe the better we get at hiding it, but it's there. That connection is there. Lastly, your influences will predict your future. And this is the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. Notice in verses three through six as we read through it, notice the contrasting results of each way of listening to ungodly influences and listening to the influence of the word of God. Verse three, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Influences matter. Influences will predict your future. Who you allow to influence you will lead you toward your destiny. So notice the contrast. Let's work through this. Ungodly influences bring destruction. The ungodly will be unstable, blown away like chaff. Chaff was the part of the the harvest that was not needed. When someone would thresh, they would get the whole stock. They would throw it up. The kernel would come down because it's heavier. The chaff would be blown away. And you know what the chaff was good for? Nothing. It was good for nothing. All it did was burn easily. And that was a danger to an agricultural society. I like to think of chaff as like tumbleweed out here. You know what tumbleweed's good for? Nothing. You can't do anything with it. You can't build anything with it. All it does is bang into your car on a windy day. Well, that's not good. Like tumbleweed that's blown about, the ungodly will have no stability in the winds of life. And so we have to ask the question of our own lives. Do, do I have stability in my life? When hardship comes, am I reacting all over the place? Am I frustrated and always in a place where it feels like there's nothing I can do to get out of this? And what do I do? And, and it's like every little challenge is a crisis. Could that be an indication that we're not planted in the word of God? We're ungodly and listening to ungodly influences at least? Because the person who plants themselves deep in the word, as we'll see in a moment, is rooted like a tree. The ungodly are unstable, blown away like chaff. Second, the ungodly will not survive God's judgment. They will not stand in the judgment. The wicked will be judged by God, will not enter the assembly of the righteous. Now, as Christians talking about influence, the scriptures are very clear that if you are a believer in Christ, you will not face God's judgment. So this contrast can't be pressed too far because Psalm 1 is showing us that the ungodly will be judged. Well, if you're being influenced by them, do you think that that's going to lead to God's blessing? <laughs> no. 
they will not enter the assembly of the righteous. They will not be able to stand. Third, they will simply perish. The ungodly will perish. Last few words of the psalm. The way of the ungodly shall perish. And that's really interesting because the word ungodly is the same word as in verse 1. The word path or the word way in the New King James there at the end of verse 6 is the same word way or path of sinners in verse 1. The end result of a lifestyle of ungodliness is not prosperity or flourishing, it's destruction. The person who lives against God in unrepentant evil will perish. And the people who listen to that type of advice will not prosper. There's a huge contrast then, direct contrast between the godly and the ungodly. The godly will be stable, planted deeply like a tree. Being influenced by the Lord makes a person like an oak, planted deep, not blown about by the winds of life. We have a tree over by the bookstore right outside that has grown on an angle and then the top of it is almost at a right angle. If you ever go out that way, just look for it. Because the wind here blows, and when that tree was a young tree, it, it kind of grew on an angle, and then we must have had a couple of big windstorms or maybe some snow that sat on it, and it grew and solidified the wrong direction. Godly people who meditate on the Word of God do not grow sideways. They're planted firmly. Stability in life comes through knowing God. Because when life's hardships come, and they will, we can't avoid them. And honestly, the goal in suffering is not to get out of it as quickly as possible. The goal in 2 Corinthians 12 is to experience the grace of God through that suffering. Stability comes through knowing God and being planted deeply in that hardship. And then when hardship comes, the godly person doesn't wither. The tree that's planted is by rivers of water, which means that even in drought, it has nutrients. The person who plants themselves in God's word does not lack nourishment. In every season of life, the righteous person will have life and bear fruit. They will not wither on the vine because they're fixed in the word of God. And the picture here is like a lone tree planted by a river of water in the middle of a desert. If you're walking through a desert and all of a sudden you see trees, you should assume something, that there's water right next to it. There's a water source. It's the same way out here in the West. Field, field, field. Ooh, a bunch of trees. Must be a creek there. Because there's a water source to help that tree grow. The water source is the word of God. The person who plants themselves in the word of God will not lack anything to be able to navigate through life in a way that pleases God. Hardship does not bother them because they have what they need. And then third, the result is, is prosperity, not perishing. The result is success. Whatever he does, verse 3, he shall prosper. He shall bear fruit in all seasons and be nourished at all times. And so what are these verses telling us? These verses are warning us to resist ungodly influences and to instead make Scripture the primary influence of your mind and thinking. You could think about it this way. Which chart, which list do I want in my life? Do I want the list on the left? Do I want to be unstable? Do I want to have perishing in my future? Or do I want to be planted deeply? Do I want to prosper and have success in my life? Well, then choose your influence accordingly. If you want to be stable, you cannot listen to the world. That's just the way it works. So if you don't like the results of, our, of your life, choose a different set of influences. And what this is doing then is calling us, warning us that if you continue to go that direction, this is the end result you should expect. Galatians 6 calls it the law of sowing and reaping. 
If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap of the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh. So let's tie this all together with an analogy. You may think that this is a funny analogy, but I'd like to use the analogy of weight loss goals. If you simply say, I'm going to lose 20 pounds and do nothing about it, you probably won't get very far. Maybe some of you are like, yep, I know someone just like that. There are other factors that influence your weight loss, aren't there? How about diet? What you eat is very important. If you're eating at fast food restaurants several times a week, that's not going to help your weight loss goal. If you're eating lots of processed sugars, that's not going to help you lose weight. So that's a factor. Well, what about exercise? You don't have to become a marathoner overnight. That'd be actually very dangerous. But you do have to have some movement, right? If you're sitting around all day, if you have a sedentary lifestyle, it's going to be very difficult to lose weight. You at least have to start walking or swimming or something. Sleep habits are another factor. Regular patterns of sufficient rest help the body control weight fluctuations. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. You know, don't sleep 12 hours a night and say, my pastor told me I can do that, okay? But this is what I've read, that sleep matters. If you have inconsistent sleep or just little sleep, it's going to affect you in other ways. We could go on on this, but the point is this. These factors influence weight loss goals. And if you don't understand how they influence or affect your weight, you won't be able to reach your goal. You're just going to get frustrated. And if we don't understand what's influencing our minds, we will struggle to grow spiritually. Growing spiritually is not simply, well, I'm going to grow this week or I'm going to grow this year. There are other factors that play into our growth, factors that we looked at this morning. Who we're listening to, who has captured our heart and our, our loves or our affections, who controls our thinking, who is shaping our destiny. These things will either help or hinder your spiritual development. There's a reason Jesus called us in discipleship and said, die to yourself, because we can't live for ourselves and experience God's blessing at the same time. We have to give something up. So we need to ask ourselves this, who am I under the influence of? Who am I under the influence of? And this is probably not a yes or no, black or white thing, it's probably on a spectrum. But I would encourage you to take the time this afternoon, this week, to mentally walk through your week and note all the influences on your heart and mind. It won't take you as long as you think. Start by noting your screen time and your listening habits and your entertainment choices and compare those things to the time that you spend in God's word. That's a really easy way to start this process. And then by the grace of God, take a first step in replacing those ungodly influences with a greater dose in scriptural truth. Because Psalm 1 begins with a little statement, blessed is the man who. The blessed person rejects these ungodly influences and instead makes scripture their controlling influence. And when you do that, you will see that over time you will be planted deeply in the truth of God's word. Shall we ask the Lord for help with this? Would you pray with me as we conclude? Father, this is not easy to do because we are creatures of habit. We like our preferences for obvious reasons. But you have called us to lay aside these influences, to not be conformed to the world. And Psalm 1 actually shows us very clearly how to do that. As we go from here today, grant us much grace and strength so that as we look at our lives and have some introspective time that I pray everyone would do, as we see things that we say, mm, that's not influencing me toward Christ, I pray that we would have the courage and the grace 
to replace that with what you are calling us to do. May you bless us in this endeavor and may we see that our paths do flourish and our fruit is born in our life because that we are planted deep on your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.